All right, we are, we are in a new book, and you are going to get a grand total of one whole week here before we get a week off. <laughs> I don't make the calendar. I didn't do it. But next week is Pentecost. So we will take a time out from our regularly scheduled programming to uh, deal with Pentecost, and then we, will, then we will be, you say that three times fast, then we will be back in Job. You would think I spoke for a living or something as, you know, as well as I can run words together. We will, we will be back in Job straight through until we finish it in September. Yes. <laughs> Some of you just did that math and went, what? We are going to go through this book that quickly, and there is a good reason. We're going to gloss over a lot of it, and, and here's why. You can only handle so much depression. I can only handle so much depression. If we try to break down all the speeches of Job, we'll just have to like stop and be like, okay, somebody read a psalm. We need to feel better about ourselves. No, wait, not one of the imprecatory psalms. No, no, no. <laughs> one of the happy ones. No. There are, there are speeches in Job that are two and three chapters that are saying the same thing. You don't want me to come back for the same, same thing for three weeks in a row in the same speech by the same guy. So we're going to handle this in big chunks. Now, not at the beginning. In the beginning, this will look a lot like normal, but I'm warning you now, in the next couple of weeks, this will be chapters at a stretch. We will read the whole thing. But we will stop and make points and highlight specific spots. Now, if this book is going to be such a nuisance to go through on a Sunday morning, why do it? <laughs> One, it's in your Bible. If it's in your Bible, what should you do? You should read it. Read your Bible, it'll do you well. It's useful. But secondly, and maybe more applicably, I don't know, Job really does handle big questions of life and answers a lot of them. And then the ones that it doesn't answer, you just have to be comfortable with why it doesn't answer. Either way, that is good for us. It's the story of humanity living in a broken world where broken things happen to broken people. You don't know anyone like that right? You don't, you, don't, you don't know anyone who is struggling with sin or is having the effects of sin interact with them on a regular basis, right? You don't know those folks. Exactly. <laughs> I've looked at his and him in the mirror this morning. Because Job deals with these topics and deals with these ideas, it is helpful to us. So we will go through it and tackle some of these ideas. Now, let's start out with the most useful stuff. What we don't know <laughs> <laughs> we don't know who wrote it, when they wrote it, or when this happened. <laughs> Other than that, we're good. We have some ideas, and we will cover them, and actually we'll do that very quickly. So, you ready? Shall we dive in it? All right, verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. <sighs> we're going to pause right there. All right, Uz, you guys know where that is, right? Of course you do. It is near Midian. You guys know where that is, right? <laughs> you, yeah, we, actually, we were in Midian, but it was uh, probably about a year ago. Midian is Sinai Peninsula. It is where Jethro, the father-in-law of Moses, abides, where Moses left when he left Egypt, where the Israelites traveled through to get to Sinai. Now, because of that, there are two competing theories as to who the author of this book is 
Let me make sure I get my subject verb agreement here today. I got that messed up last week. Try not to do that two weeks in a row. One is mosaic authorship. Moses. This would make sense. This is something that comes from an area that he lived in for 40 years. This would come from a time that he would have been closer to. The other option is what we would call Solomonic authorship or written by Solomon. Why? Wisdom literature. Who wrote the bulk of the wisdom literature? Solomon. Song of Solomon, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. It would make sense that the wise guy of Israel, which suddenly now I'm picturing him in a white suit with a hat, you know, he's a wise guy. What do you want? (laughs) He, um, it would make sense from Solomon, I am not going to care either way. Pick one. Enjoy it. Let that be your theory. Fight to the death with those who disagree with you, right? No. Let it be the, one of those things you hold in open hand. Now, the more important thing that we're not sure of that would be useful to find out, though, is when these things occur, because it would help place it in a context, and you know we just love our context, Right. We're going to put this in the patriarchal-ish period. So, okay. The eyes are glossing over, so I better move to the side of the podium real fast. All right. In Genesis specifically, we typically divide the book into two categories. You have a primeval history and you have a patriarchal history. So primeval history is Genesis 1 through 11, basically. So that's creation to Babel and everything in between, Noah and all of that. Patriarchal history kicks off with the first of the patriarchs, Abraham. Then you get Isaac, then you get Jacob, and typically Joseph thrown in. So that's your patriarchal section of Genesis. Where we're going to place Job historically is kind of in between those. (laughs) There's nothing biblically in between those, but historically there's quite a bit. The reason we're going to do that is some of the things that are occurring in the book. One is the time frame that Job lives. Dude sticks around for a while. By the time you get to Abraham, you start to see what with the ages. They're starting to shorten. And by the way, People like to use the ages of the primeval and early patriarchal history as evidence against Scripture, when in actuality it should be evidence for Scripture. And here's what I mean. There's actually a really good reason why those ages start to crater and fall off the earth like they do. Go back to the garden. Adam and Eve were created and called what? Good. Male and female, at the end of the day, and God said that it was good. Are you? (laughs) Have you been created good? No. Where does Abraham get a wife? From his family. Where does he send to get a wife for Isaac? Where does Jacob get a wife? That's against the law, isn't it? Not yet. See, good answer. Good answer. Not yet. The Levitical law against intermarrying close relatives hasn't been given yet. Why? Because it's not a problem. Like, why don't you marry your cousin? (laughs) Yes. Good answer. There are some people that for, for whom that is not in you. To this day, I actually know people that are married to cousins and close relatives, but that's a different discussion for another day. (laughs) Well, anyway. Genetically, though, is it optimal for humanity? No, you just explained British royalty. 
<laughs> no, and, and I'm serious. If you ever wonder why there is a higher incidence in European royalty of disease and mental illness than there is in the regular population, it's because when you fast forward to like the 18th and 19th century, the end of the European dynasties, realize that both, well actually both and, the Spanish dynasty as well as the Netherlands dynasty are both Habsburgs. So you have the Spanish Habsburgs and the Dutch Habsburgs and you have the Austrian Habsburgs and yet these people are entirely different ethnicities but they come from the same family. Realize that the, um, the British monarch that sits on the throne now comes from a German family but it's the same family line unbroken going all the way back to Robert the Bruce who was a king in Scotland in the 14th century. So one family line has gone from Scottish to English to German, to English. It's the same family. How do you do that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's called the family shrub. You know, it's not the, it doesn't have a tree with branches. It's kind, of like, it's kind of like a weed, you know? It just kind of circles back on itself. This is not good for humanity. You end up with people with disabilities. You end up with genetic breakdown and flaws. That's why the command is given. This is also why, to make this long story even longer, I, I can admit it, you see the ages begin to crater off. Adam and Eve are created good. Their genes are good. Their cellular function is good. They repair, they heal, they recover. Go sleep four hours. How do you feel the next day? Adam and Eve would have felt better. They would have felt better. Their body would have repaired faster. They would have been healthier. They would have done more with less. They would have, they would have functioned better than you do because they were closer to perfection. As sin corrupts, because what is sin corrupt? everything, it, corrupt, it corrupts even down to the molecular level, even down to how your body functions, how it is put together, how it fights off illness, how it wards away cancers, how it does all of these things. So as you get away from the garden and as the curse corrupts, what do you see happening to the ages? They start to drop off. And, even, and again, it basically settles. Once you get post-Moses, it's kind of in that 70, 80-year range, isn't it? Where is it today? Take modern medical intervention out of the equation, what do you got? Somewhere in that ballpark. Rewind even 500 years. If you made it to adulthood, you know what you saw most people live to? That 60 to 70 range. The reason why the average lifespan was so low throughout most of human history is not because people died when they were 40, it was because so many children died, and that skews the average by lowering it. If you made it to adulthood, there's a pretty good chance you were going to be 60, 70, 80 years old, but you got to make it past, you know, five. Just think how many childhood illnesses there are and things that we treat and can deal with now that would have been fatal a couple hundred years ago. That's part of common grace and the work of God. But because of Job's age and other characteristics of his life, we put this patriarchal period that doesn't fit on that screen suddenly. I just noticed that. Anyway, um, also, because of the other peoples involved, you have nomadic Chaldeans who will later become the Babylonians because they're still nomadic. That's got to put them pre-patriarchal time. Father functioning as priest, that would put it pre-patriarchal time as well and even into the early patriarchal period. You see this going on with Abraham offering sacrifice and not having an organized priest offering sacrifice. And then finally, how do you determine how rich you are? See, stuff, but even to this day, we, you got to be able to monetize stuff. So we assign a monetary value. 
In the ancient world, specifically the patriarchal world, wealth was counted not just by coins in your pocket, but by crops, flocks, herds. And you'll see that with Job. So all of that to give you a place. We are probably somewhere around the time of Abraham or a little bit sooner. Which means how much scripture do we have written? Not a lot of anything, really. So you're dealing with a similar world to what Moses would have entered into when he went to Jethro's home. When he entered into that time of 40 years of learning and the worship of God away from Egypt, before Abraham is given the covenant, before a lot of these things. So, with all of that said, there was a man in the land of us whose name was Job, and I promise we'll speed up from here. And that man was blameless and upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. Isn't that what we want people to say about us? Blameless and upright. This is, this is a good description. Um, Genesis 6-9. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was, righteous, was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Had he become blameless and upright? You walk according to the ways of the world, right? No, 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 no. You walk with God. Now, important note. Is Job perfect? Is Job sinless? No, he is blameless and upright. Psalm 32. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Job is good because God has cleansed him. Job is good because God is good. Seven sons and three daughters were born to him. His possessions also were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. And that man was the greatest of all the men of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. All right, time out. That's a wealthy guy, no matter how you define it. If you define it by having stuff, Job is wealthy. If you define it by a family that is loving and caring and concerned about each other, Job is wealthy. He has everything that the world would tell you you should have. So, verse 5. When the days of fasting had completed their cycle, Job would send and consecrate them, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, Perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Beyond just his relationship to family and stuff, who else is Job concerned about having a relationship with? God, blameless and upright. Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, that you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess it, so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command you all the days of your life that your days may be prolonged. Now, pause real quick. There's a reason why I keep reading you things from the law and things from the Psalms in connection to a guy who's living a life when none of those things existed. There is nothing new under the sun. God has interacted with his people in the same way since the beginning. Saved by grace through faith. Saved from their sin, saved to a righteousness provided by God so that they would walk in it as God has strengthened them. They're not different from you. You're not different from them. That's both a blessing and a curse. 
The blessing is God hasn't changed. Amen. The curse is the same things that afflicted them, the same things that would tear them down, the same things that would distract them, the same things that would knock them off off course are the same things that are coming upon you. They just come in different manners sometimes. This is again why a book like this is instructive and why it has lasted in Scripture. Job is tackling how you live in a broken world. Christian, that's our world. Job is tackling how a broken man, redeemed by God, lives in the midst of that brokenness. Christian, that's us. We are good because Christ is good and has made us good by his work, not our own. Remember that as we go through Job, because the temptation is to forget why we stand and assume Job stands for a different reason and then get mad at him for how he responds. <laughs> Remember why he stands because it's the reason why we stand and then let's evaluate rightly and then let's see what goes right and what goes wrong. That's what we'll do as we move forward. So now is where business picks up. There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where do you come from? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. That's just interesting. Here, Sally, can you skip two ahead? I think we, we lost you because you can't. There you are. One. One more. There we go. <laughs> It's hard to see that number. <laughs> oh, because it's off the screen. That's not helpful. <laughs> so, yeah, there we go. So we have the heavenly court here. God is holding court. Who is included in this court? Satan, Lucifer, the devil. You know, the one that everybody wants to hang out with, right? He's fun at parties. No. Notice what he declares here. Again, if you ever wonder where your New Testament writers get their ideas about things, Read your Old Testament. 1 Peter 5. Be of sober spirit and be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Sound familiar? What is he doing? Roaming around. Now, important note that we need to always have, and this book is going to make part of this point here. It's something that gets glossed over if you're not paying attention in Luke 22. Simon, Simon, behold... Jesus is speaking. Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Covered this before. What do you want that answer to be? Yeah, no! <laughs> you know, Peter's like, you said no, absolutely not, right? But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail in you when you have once turned again. Strengthen your brothers. You know what that means, don't you? The answer was yes. Now here's the important part that we miss. In order to get to Peter, Satan had to go through who? God. Every time. Every time. That roaring lion is in a cage and on a leash. And God holds the other end of the leash, and he holds the keys to the cage. Don't ever give me. I am the wrong guy to come up and go, well, Satan tempted me. Mm -hmm. And you did what? <laughs> and you did what? Exactly. I did what I wanted to do. This is why it's so important where your life is hidden. This is why it is so important what your standard is and what you're seeking after. Because the temptation and the, the pull is not something that is alien to you. It is you. I'm my problem. You're your problem. What's my cure? It is Christ. 
the renewing work of the Holy Spirit, the grounding in Scripture, the understanding of how this world is supposed to operate in light of the commands, following after who he is, what he has done, and how he has laid down for me to walk. That's the cure. Why would I ever do that? Because he has died for me and cleansed me and loves me. So he just feeds me to the wolves, right? No. May leave you to your own devices on occasion because you've never done that with your kids, right? You never looked at your kids and gone, you know what? You are determined to learn this lesson. So you know what? All right, see what happens. See what happens. You don't like that, but there reaches a point sometimes with some people you have to say what? All right, go ahead. See what that gets you and see what that looks like. Always remember that God is on his throne and there is no one, no power, no entity that changes that. Isaiah 14. The Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, Surely, just as I have intended, so it has happened. Just as I have planned, so it will stand. And none of that changed just because of the work of Christ. John 10. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. You don't hold Christ. Christ holds you. You don't cling to God. God clings to you. Who wants, did you ever play that game with kids? Like, if if you didn't do it? With your kids, you ever do it with like nieces and nephews where you hold on to something and they start prying on your fingers? Like when they're two and three and eventually you let them do it. Who's prying open God's hand? So when he reaches over and goes, that one's mine. Who's undoing that? See, I used to, I used to, I used to dread that when I was a kid. I went to, um, I went to, it doesn't exist anymore, Simon Lake School in Milford, Connecticut. And my principal's name, I have no idea what the man's first name was, was Mr. Godoya. <laughs> big old no-neck Greek guy. And if you ever got in trouble, they didn't send you to the office. They would call Mr. Godoya from the office to come get you. And if you were a boy, he would grab you by the back of the neck, like this, like a, and walk you to the office. And I was like first, second grade. Like I'm six and seven years old, and his fingers were just about touching the front. I mean, just big old meat hooks for hands. And it's like, you'd walk down the office like, I don't want to die. I don't even know what I did. It's... Uh... <laughs> That's what I always imagine God grabbing you being like. You're just like, I'm done. I'm not moving. I'm not leaving. I'm not going anywhere. I guess he figured maybe. I'm, the only thing I can figure is one day somebody ran on him. So his determination was just like. Kung. And he would. I, I forget. I used to have a friend of mine. And he, uh, John and I would get walked down. You know. <laughs> I'm sorry. You're not undoing it. You're not getting away from God. Christian again. That's good news. If you had to hold on to God, you know how much trouble we'd be in? Because <laughs> you know what you'd do? You'd be like, I got Jesus. Ooh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Where'd he go? Where'd he go? Oh, this isn't good. He was right here when I left him. <laughs> this is what would happen. Instead, what does this look like? Oh, another bad story. We were at a Christmas parade. God, Jada was not one yet, or was she one? I don't remember. Cameron will have to help me out on this one. Jada was little, and we walked through the parade, and we were handing out um, goodie bags with gospel tracks and doing the whole parade. Ride to get, the town had about 1,000 people in it. And when we got to the end, Jada was cold, and it was just one of those days, so she was finally riding in the truck that was pulling our little float until she saw a friend's house, 
And so she was sitting in the seat in front, next to one of the guys who was driving the truck. And all of a sudden, she saw the friend's house, and she wanted to go to that house. So she climbed in his lap and tried to get out the window. <laughs> and I'm running alongside the trailer, and Cameron's sitting in the back, while Jada is hanging half out the window. And all I hear as I walk up is, let me go, let me go, let me go. <laughs> That's you. That's us. Terry, thank goodness, that was his name, was not letting her go. <laughs> he was like, somebody keeps trying to drive <laughs> the kid hanging out the window. Because you ever try to grab a kid that's squirming? It's, it's like a bucket of worms has come to life in your hands. And I had to run up to the side of the truck and I got her, we're good. Where are you going? <laughs> She's looking at me, put me down. No, I'm not putting you down. Back in the truck. <laughs> that's you with God. Let me go, let me go. And God's answer is, no, you're mine. Verse 8. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, blameless, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Does God need to ask that question? Who picked the fight? God does. God is picking the fight. Once again, Job is like, Don't, don't mention me. <laughs> Leave me alone. No. Is that a good idea? Do you want God to leave you alone? Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. Who tries you? God does. Who carries you through trial? God does. Remember that as we go through this. Verse 9. Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house, and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now, and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to your face. Has anything ever changed? How many weapons does Satan have? And here it is, right here. He can make some accusations. He can accuse you. Put the shiny object in front of you. When you go astray, who went astray? You did. I mean, this goes all the way back to the garden. What's he looking at? The serpent is more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Taking that little, tiny little twist and doing what? Just turn it slightly. This is why Jesus told the crowds what? You're of your father, the devil. And you lie because he was a liar and a murderer from the beginning. Now question, is Satan wrong about people? When left to their own devices, everything going well in your world, and suddenly everything is not going well in your world. You just love it when that happens, don't you? You just smile and rejoice in the world and... You're just so happy that it decided to kick you in the rear end that day, right? Why don't you live there? Is Satan wrong about people left to their own devices? And the answer is no. Is he wrong about people redeemed of God and strengthened by the Holy Spirit? Yes. So in other words, he's right about us. He's wrong about God. And that's the difference. This is why your strength can't be in you. This is why your hope can't be in you. This is why your perseverance can't be in you. It has to be founded on the promises and the work of Christ every single time. 
If it is placed anywhere else, it is placed in something that has no power, that is corrupted by sin and will be undone by temptation and strife and trial every single time. Verse 12, the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your power, only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. And, and by the way, Christian, that's why you resist. May not seem like it, but that's why you resist. Because Satan's prowling around looking for somebody to tear apart, right? Why do you stand firm? Will he tear you apart? No. 1 Peter 5 again. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Do you think there's a human being on the planet that has a better understanding of being saved, tested, and redeemed by God than Peter? I I, I mean, think about that. Walking with Christ for three years, I'm going to cut off Malchus's head. He's just so bad with the sword, he only gets his ear. (laughs) Just imagine how brave that is. I got him. I missed. Hold still. (laughs) I mean, I'll follow you to death, right? Jesus, what's a Jesus? Never heard of the guy. You sound like a Galilean. I am astounded that you would think that I speak with an accent. (laughs) I mean, I'm going to go fishing. I'm out of here. I can't do this. Isn't that Peter's story arc right there? I'm just, I got to go fishing again because what am I good at? I can catch fish. I can't follow a savior. I can't lead a church. I can go catch fish. You think it's any coincidence that when he can go catch fish, what does he not do? (laughs) It doesn't catch any fish. I can't even do this thing that I used to be good at. Because that's not you in Christ. Feed my lambs. Shepherd the flock. Feed the sheep. Do the work. This is why Peter can get it. Yeah, Satan's prowling around. Yeah, he wants to devour you. Stand firm. Because God carries you through. God has rescued you. God will see you past. It is his dominion, his authority, his work. Rest there. Walk faithfully because it is God that is strengthening, God that is empowering, God that is dragging you, kicking and screaming if need be. But it is God who is doing all of these things, which means your trials, your tribulations, and your temptations are not occurring because Satan has set his sides on you because God is working in you on his schedule, on his timetable, for your good and for his glory. So how do you resist, Christian? Ephesians 6. Take up the full armor of God. We gloss over this. So that you'll be able to resist in the evil day, having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, which you will be able, which with, with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. In other words, all of that is centered on who? Christ. Where is your faith? It is in the work that Christ has done. 
Where is your hope? It is in the proclamation of the message that he has given. Where's the renewal of your mind? It is in the salvation that he has provided, the guiding of the Holy Spirit. What is the weapon that you wield against the world? It is the declarations and the teachings of Scripture so that you will know how to walk, how to refute sin, how to evangelize, how to disciple, so that you may strengthen your heart, renew your mind, and walk according to all that Christ is because of what he has provided for you. I almost got that on one breath. (laughs) (laughs) So close. In a nutshell, trust in God, turn from the world, follow after Scripture. Again, what have I told you? Where's my authority come from? Why should you listen to anything me, lunatic self, has to say? If it's my idea, you know what you should do? (laughs) Throw things and run screaming from the room. But if it's Scripture, who do you need to start arguing with? And see, this is... This is why there, this is why those Bible references are listed in your bulletin. This is why we anchor to the text the way that we do. If you want to disagree with me, you are fully welcome to do so. You know where the argument lies? In Scripture. You need to come to me and show me in Scripture where this understanding is wrong, this other understanding is right, and why then we need to do something different based on the Word. Not my idea, not your idea, not God has told me this, or not I have an inkling. I've told you before, one of those dangerous phrases anybody says in church is, God told me, or God gave me an idea. Every time somebody says that, like there's a part of the back of my head that just kind of goes, because what you're, again, what you're really saying when you say God told me is that if I disagree with you, or if I argue with you, I am disagreeing with and arguing with God. I don't want to be there. You don't want to be there, so let's go find Bible verses. Because there's an objective ground where we can hash out who God is and what he has told us and how we should live. That's the objective place. By the way, that's the objective place for you, and that's also the objective place for them out there. You don't win the argument by winning politics. You don't win the arguments by winning culture. You win the argument by winning hearts and minds through the proclamation of the gospel that changes the people you're arguing with. It is a fidelity to Christ and his word and a fidelity to all that he has done for us as we live and proclaim in this world. Nothing has changed. That's, again, why the weapon of all of that in Ephesians 6 is what? Scripture. Everything else is found in your work in trusting in Christ. Now, are there examples of this in Scripture that would be useful? Hmm, I wonder if there would be an example. Yes, Matthew chapter 4. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Ooh, same guy. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. I, I can see that. You know, fast for a month and a quarter, you'd be like, you know... Some food would be a good plan right now. And the tempter came, that's Satan again, and said to him, if you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. Because if you're the son of God, you have that kind of authority, don't you? But but Jesus answered him and said, it is written that man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it's written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now time out. 
Did you notice what the locus of those two temptations are? If you are the Son of God, why are you suffering? Why are you hungry? Why are you worried? Why are you anything? Why should your falling be a death? Your God. Why should you not have bread whenever you want it? Your God. Who's he challenging? He's challenging the humanity of Christ. What is Christ's work? To be the representative. To be hungry. To be thirsty. To be tired. To be us. To bear us to the cross. To suffer on our behalf. To bear our penalty. If you're willing to bypass that because you're a little bit hungry and thirsty... Are we, are we going to Gethsemane? Are we going to Golgotha? No, not even a little bit. We have not passed go. We will not collect $200. We have no hope. The temptation is to abandon God in place of earthly comforts. Christian, you wouldn't know anything about that in this world, would you? Abandon God. Forsake your principles. Forsake that righteousness you cling to. And in exchange, you can have all that the world will provide. Now do you understand why you are to reject the world? Why you are to take up the cross? Why, what have you gained when you get the whole world and yet forfeit your soul? These ideas are not new. There is nothing new under the sun. This is the work that Satan has been doing and is doing, and by the way, will be doing until Jesus goes, we're done here. But until that day, you fight, you war, and you resist. How? By being anchored in Scripture, grounded in the work of Christ, and trusting that it is His work and Spirit that carries you forward. This is what the example gives you. So again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, go Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. I mean... Isn't this everything in life? The next job, the next thing, the next station, the next, the next climb up the rung of the ladder to get what? I have no idea half the time. But we like it. Because it's praise and adoration from this place. May it never be. So, rapid fire, you ready? Verse 13 and following. Now on the day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their older brother, oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans attacked and took them. They slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another came also and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the camels and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. It's good to be that guy, apparently. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their older brother's house. And behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. 
If you were Job's corner man in a boxing match, how long ago would you have thrown in the towel and be like, stop hitting him, he's dead, it's, we're, it's over. I mean, this is gut punch after gut punch after gut punch. I mean, now, this man was wealthy by any measure of wealth. Flocks, herds, possessions, family. What's left? Nothing. Is that bad? <laughs> yeah, that is. Now I have that stupid song stuck in If you had a bad day. <laughs> now you know who he was singing about. A good name is better than good ointment. And the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to a house of feasting, because that is the end of every man, and the living takes it to heart. It's Ecclesiastes 7. A day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. I would rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. That's Psalm 84. The reason why I ask you if that's bad is because the answer to that question depends on your perspective. And I'm serious about that depends on your perspective. First Peter 3. Go back to that Peter guy again. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you yet with gentleness and reverence, and keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Paul puts it a little bit differently in Philippians 1. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. I'm not telling you to rejoice that bad things have happened to you, but I am cautioning you about being broken completely by the bad things that happen. And there is a difference between those two things. This is part of the lesson of Job. Should we be like, all right, God took all my stuff and he burned down my house and he killed my kids. Yes! No, that would be ridiculous. You're a psychopath. Don't talk to me again. Okay? That, that's, that's an easy thing. But am I ruined? Am I undone? God, just kill me instead, whatever your, you know, lament might happen to be. Because too often we go to that side as well. Yes, we mourn what is lost. Be ridiculous not to. But Christian, we are not undone. Christian, we have not lost the better thing. And if we have discipled, and if we have built, then we have lost nothing. This is our hope in Christ. It is not a hope that things are going well here. I've told you this before about children. If I raise my kids and they live great lives in the world and they are respected and productive members of society and they pay their taxes and they don't cause any trouble, and that's all I've ever done. Did I do a good job? No. No. I've missed it. I've missed it. The hope is not here. The hope is in Christ. This is where the long focus comes in. This is why being grounded on Scripture and having a faith that guards heart and mind in Christ is so important. It puts life in perspective. And that perspective is needed because, again, what's good here? 
And I'm serious about that. Because every time it seems like I turn on something, this is, full disclosure, um, this will be the last time I mention it. Um, I won't talk about what's going on in Texas right now because I can't talk about it without getting angry. There are failures of humanity at so many levels from the family of the kid with the gun to the families in the police officers standing in hallways, which, hang on, okay, that to me, mm. to government officials, to politicians who want to politic on it, who want to stand on dead bodies to get policies accomplished. This is a failure at every level. Why? Because it's a society that has rejected where truth lies, where hope is found, and what we do about this and how we deal with one another. Because that is the case in society at all, what is good here? And the answer is nothing. Now, Christian, does that mean we are without hope? No. Because our hope is not for goodness here. Our hope is for goodness in eternity found in Christ. So yes, this is bad because this is miserable. Nobody wants to live like this. But this does not end me. And this does not undo the work that Christ has accomplished. And this does not change who I am and how I live. That's the war Job is fighting. Because what's the temptation when you mourn? It's to forget everything you have here. Because what are we being guided by? I've told you this before. I can't be guided by how I feel. How I feel must be determined by what I no. In some days, that's easier than others. Absolutely. But that's the war we have to take up constantly. Because again, there's nothing in this world that's going to help you do that outside of Scripture and the work of the Spirit. This is why we walk the walk that we do, and this is why we have to guard our hearts and minds constantly. So, let's see what Job does first. And I say first because he's going to do a lot. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. That's a good start. Um, tearing the robe, shaving the head, this, is, this would be a sign of mourning. So this would be the equivalent to uh, the widow putting on black and wearing a veil, you know, back in the day. Or why everybody wears black to a funeral. Same thing. It's an outward symbol of mourning. So good news here. Was Satan right? Take everything he's got, and he'll curse you to your face. So the liar was lying. Yes. <laughs> Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth should change, and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride, our help comes from God. Verse 21. Job said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. If you didn't know, that's where the song lyric comes from. <laughs> it just, just seems to have the wrong tone now in Chris Tomlin music, doesn't it? <laughs> I doubt Job was sitting there, blessed be the name of the Lord, blessed be his name. I just... <laughs> No, no. I will turn into David. You think I'm undignified now? <laughs> I mean, do you think that's how he said it? Because I don't either. Go back to Psalm 46. Come, 
Behold the works of the Lord, who has wrought desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariot with fire. Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. See, we like to, we like to stop at that cease striving and know that I am God. Did you catch the context? War and destruction and death, and you're supposed to stay calm. <laughs> Ladies, has that ever worked? <laughs> you need to calm down. <laughs> has that ever worked once in human history? Guys, have we ever not said it? <laughs> you need to calm down. Because you do need to calm down. And no, I understand you don't want to calm down, but at the same time, that's the context, though is the world is literally going to hell in a handbasket, and you are supposed to do what? Abide in Christ. Not follow after them. Not be driven away. Driven away. Driven around. There it is. Ooh, language. Driven around by the insanity that is around you. This is why I said I can't talk about so many things that go on in the world on a regular basis, because what does it do? Just... Pulls me right down to where they are. And now what am I doing? I'm having the same argument they're having in the same way they're having, and, I'm ex- and I'm, I am accomplishing exactly what? Nothing. Instead, I see, I see striving. I proclaim Christ. I trust in him, and I walk faithfully and know that as I do that, though the insanity build and crescendo in ways I can't imagine, he will be faithful, and he will hold me firm. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. <laughs> Somebody got one right. I mean, in your Old Testament, someone got one right. What is that, like three now that we have found <laughs> in all the time we've looked through? Are, are we, we going to need two hands by the time it's all said and done to count the people that got one right? I don't, I don't think so. James 4. This is what this looks like. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep, and let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. How do you cleanse your hands? In Christ. How do you purify your heart? In Christ. How do you renew your mind? In Christ. This is where the funeral psalm comes in. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil and my cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Even when times are tough, God is there. Even when the entire world be losing its mind, God is there. Even when destruction feels like it's around the corner, God is there and he has not forgotten his people and he has not forsaken them and he will see them through. That's the hope that Job actually provides. Now, Job's going to take a really, really circuitous route to get there. You wouldn't know anybody like that either, would you? <laughs> Takes the long way around, likes to learn every lesson the hard way. That's why he's so much fun. But the lesson is clear. God has picked the fight because God will see his people through. Christian, nothing has changed. 
Abide in him because he has redeemed you. Let's pray.